Hello, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Today we're going to talk about India, independence, um, Gotroda, um, the guy with the dyed goatee who I uh, exposed uh, in one of my tweets, and about CSIR. So for those of you who are from the United States, you're going to learn a little bit about Indian independence and uh, my journey um, back to India in 2007, some of the interesting things uh, that I went through. But more importantly, um, I hope to share with you some of the areas of Indian history that many people have uh, not had the opportunity here because there's been so much um, lying of uh, Indian history and covering up. And the, this Goat Rhoda guy is an example of that. I call him Goat Rhoda, and you'll see why. Uh, but let's start with a little bit about Indian independence. Um, and just to put this in context, many people know that uh, I was born in India, I was born in Bombay, but I also lived in a small in, uh, uh, village in deep South India, uh, near uh, Rajapalayam. For those of you who want to know India, Tamil Nadu is a small state at the bottom of India, uh, at the tip of India. But so I grew up in these two worlds, in the deep city of Bombay, which is very, very cosmopolitan, uh, extremely uh, diverse, all different religions, all different languages, etc. But I also grew up in a small village. But I had the opportunity uh, at, at, at that age, because I still had access to my great-grandfather, my grandparents, uh, to really learn a lot about Indian history and actually to study it deeply. One of the important things that emerges uh, when you really look back at Indian history is that there were various phases that India went through. Uh, particularly when you look at colonialism. One phase, uh, one phase uh, of Indian history was um, around the 15-1600s. You had Europeans actually come there to actually trade with the emerging um, entrepreneurs of India. People know globally um, around the 15-1600s you had the, uh, the starting uh, the fall of the monarchies and the rise of what uh, Marx would call the merchant class, you know, from a Marxian or a uh, or a uh, uh, analysis, historical materialist analysis, and that uh, affected India too. Um, in the eighth century in India, to go even back further, there was a movement called the Sankaracharya movement, which asked a fundamental question, which said, "If there's equality in heaven, why isn't there equality on earth?" And that movement. Um, over many years, between the 8th, 8th, 8th through the 15th century, led to the development of what was known as a Bhakti movement, where people actually said, um, uh, why is there the caste system? And what you see between the 8th through the 15th century was actually the decline of the old draconian caste system and the rise of the Indian merchant class. So by the 15th, 16th century, you had this emerging Indian merchant class rising. And so when, when the British and the French and the Dutch came, they were actually beginning to trade with this emerging merchant class. There's a great book, by the way, written called uh, Rise and Fall of the East India Company by Ramakrishna Mukherjee. Great book. It really lays all of this out. And there's others like this too, but you typically don't get this in the popular history. So um, in that time period, um, that is when you had the emergence of trade between the early Europeans and the emergent merchant class of India. However, around the 16-1700s, um, that relationship changed, particularly with the British, who said, why do we need these middlemen traders? Why don't we prop up 
the declining or the decadent feudal class of monarchy and negotiate with them and actually occupy India. So the British went from a period of being traders in India to actually becoming occupiers. And that was with the Battle of Plassey, I believe around 1757. And that resulted in the subjugation of the Indian people to the extent that Britain actually started occupying India. It went from a, a trading force to actually becoming an occupying force. So what you start seeing at that point was, remember, the caste system was starting to devolve. It was going away. The British did not want to overnight impose British law in India because it would have been devastating to them because the Indians probably would have revolted immediately. So instead, what they did was they went and got pre-8th century Brahmanical priests who recodified ancient Indian law, which was much more strict on what your level was, where you were supposed to be, essentially reimposed old pre-8th century caste system back to India. So the British are very clever. Instead of imposing British colonial law, they imposed uh, pre-8th century Indian law, and it was a way of manipulating the Indian masses. So what you end up seeing between 1757, probably until, you know, not so, I would argue, probably until Modi's election, uh, but definitely for um, hundreds of years, uh, the British did something fascinating. They didn't have, you know, white men with crowns always running India. They actually found brown men with white hats. What I mean by that is they created what was called the Indian Civil Service. And that civil service was the local Indians who were propped up to become Anglophiles, you know, very, very loyal to the British crown. Uh, and the, I guess very similar to the Tories uh, in the United States, uh, or forget Tories or Whigs, whoever was loyal to the British. Um, but those people were, these are Indians, were very loyal to the British crown and they became the administrative infrastructure of India, layers and layers of Indian administrative service. So. Uh, by 1947, one of the things, again, that's not discussed in the mainstream press was that the, the British, with their collaboration with the Indian elite, had built a brown-faced infrastructure to actually subjugate and run Indian politics for them or India for them. In the 1920s, to give you an important point, in the 1920s, there was a huge research, there was a huge movement, there were various before, but in the 1920s of in, local Indian nationalists, you know, Indian nationalists saying, why do we have these British here? Why don't we kick them out through an armed revolution, throw them out, and we actually uh, get back our country, you know, India as a nation. And that's around in the 20s. Now, that's around the time when Mahatma, quote unquote, Mahatma Gandhi comes into the picture. A uh, thing about Gandhi is he's been projected by movies as though the saint of India who come in who came and saved India and gave it independence. It's absolutely false. What really happened was, when Gandhi, by the way, was in South Africa, you know, he wasn't fighting for the rights of the working uh, uh, blacks and the working uh, Indian miners. He was actually fighting for the rights of the extremely elite um, Hindus, the Indians, to trade in the Transvaal region. He wasn't, you know, he's been misrepresented as though he was fighting for the broad mass of African blacks, for their liberation or the subjugated and discriminated Indians. He actually fought for a very elite class of Indians to get the trading rights in the Transvaal. That's what he did with his protests. And in fact, that miserably failed. He comes to India in a context where there's a 
rising movement of Indian revolutionaries, very much like the American revolutionaries, to oust the British. And what Gandhi does is he his relationship is with a guy called Gokhale, G-O-K-H-A-L-E. In fact, you see the movie Gandhi, you'll see a clip of this in there. And Gokhale was essentially a bootlicker of the British. He was an Anglophile. He embraces Gandhi. And in fact, many of the pictures you see of Gandhi is actually in Gokhale's mansion. So Gandhi gets projected as this you know, liberator of the Indians. You, you see his transformation from wearing the British clothing to starting to wear Indian khadi and linen. But what you see occur during that period was the British actually create the Indian National Congress, almost like the Indian Parliament. And why did they do this? This was essentially a, a way that the deep state operates, that they create a vehicle so both you know, uh, revolutionary forces can let their steam out. So the Indian National Congress was where all these you know, Indians could get together and they could let their steam off. So this was a, something that was very well architected to stop a revolutionary movement in India. And Gandhi supported that fully. So by 1947, if you actually look at the documents, it's fascinating. It's not called the Indian Declaration of Independence. It's called the transfer of power. Okay, transfer of power. So Mountbatten, who was the emperor of India at the time, or the, I forget ex exactly, Lord Mountbatten, transfers power to Nehru. <clears throat> Jawaharlal Nehru, by the way, he was the first prime minister of India. Gandhi was his sort of spiritual, quote unquote, spiritual leader, his colleague. So India gets transferred power. In fact, years before that, the British had wanted to get out of India. It was too costly for them. No different than a big multinational company like Procter & Gamble going to, let's say, Africa or Brazil. They start an operations there and they realize, you know what, it's better off letting the locals run it. It's too costly for us to keep shipping people from headquarters. That's what really happened. And in fact, the British invested $5 billion and more after they left <clears throat> India. That's what really took place. Now, the important point to understand that the transfer of power let the Indian elite actually take control of India. So it went from white men with crowns to brown men with white hats. That's what really took place in India. So for 70 years or more since independence from 1947, you could argue till Modi's election, India was really run by dynasties who were essentially many ways no different. I could, I, I could probably argue they were actually worse than the British because they subjugated their people even more efficiently. But for 70 years, the Indian civil service was the arm of the Gandhi family. So you had Jawaharlal Nehru, who, by the way, was banging Mountbatten's wife. So here you had the emperor of India, his wife and Gandhi were essentially having an affair. So this is a level of, um, you know, difference that the Indian elite and the British had. They were actually one in this operation. And so Jawaharlal Nehru, who presented himself as a liberal, a Fabian, a quote unquote socialist, etc., he didn't really relinquish power back to the Indian, you know, really support democracy. He let his daughter, who he appointed, I believe, to be the head of the broadcasting division, become the next prime minister. And then uh, Indira Gandhi, she imposed emergency powers in India at one point. And then after that, it went through one other, two other people. And then, it, and then the power came back to Rajiv Gandhi, who was her son. And, and then the Congress party was recently run uh, still run by Rajiv Gandhi's wife, Sonia Gandhi, who's actually from Italy. And now you have uh, Rajiv Gandhi's uh, son running, um, Rahul Gandhi. So you have the lineage from Jawaharlal Nehru, 
to Indira Gandhi, to Rajiv Gandhi, to Rahul Gandhi, who, by the way, is a cokehead, dropped out of Harvard, is a complete, you know, reckless fellow who's not even anywhere near the statesman that India diverse, but deserves. But this is the lineage that the British and the Indian elite colluded. So anyone who thinks India really got independence in 1947 really needs to think about what really took place in 1947 was a transfer of power. So that's sort of, and we could get more into detail. I may do more videos and podcasts on this, but we need to understand that the, 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 the history of Indian independence, I would say, when I, when I say independence, my definition is I believe every country needs to go through a good nationalist process, which means the people of the country, before you can talk internationalism and sort of theoretical ideas of globalism, um, I believe every country, in fact, this is an individual thing, just like an individual needs to find their own self within themselves as a part of their maturation, a country needs to go through its own process of having a sense of nationalism. India never had that responsibility. What Gandhi and Nehru did was completely traitorous to India. They essentially sold out the country, um, made Gandhi appear as this great spiritual person when he essentially sold the country. I should probably write a book called How One Man Sold the Country. That's what Mahatma Gandhi's legacy really was about, frankly. And he, and as a part of that, Pakistan was created. And there was no need ever to create Pakistan. This was something that was created to support a dialectic um, and created, further created divisions between, uh, uh, within India. Remember, the British ran by divide and rule, which means you divide people up, and when you divide people up, you have them bickering, and then you can impose and control. And that's what the Congress Party of India really gave to India. They continued that process. They exacerbated religious divisions and exacerbated many other divisions, um, which I don't have time to talk about today. But the reality is, uh, in my opinion, and I think many Indians will agree with this, Narendra Modi was the first person who brought to India a sense of Indian nationalism, probably Vajpayee before him. And I don't really have any political affiliations. I just look at the facts. But when Narendra Modi ran and he won in a massive landslide because he hit and he resonated with the everyday Indian, and I can speak to you as an Indian, I can speak to it from my family of generations. In 1947, the Indian people were sold out. In the 1920s, they were sold out. Some people argue that had someone like Subhash Chandra Bose become you know, the first prime minister of India or led India, it may have been good, and you may think this is a horrible thing to say, that every Indian family may have lost a son or a daughter fighting against the British, but it would have built a real sense of nationalism in India. India never had that opportunity. It was curtailed and duped by the, by the likes of the Gandhi family, Nehru and, uh, and, and Gandhi. By the way, Gandhi is not related to Indira Gandhi. Uh, there's many people saying Indira Gandhi took on that last name to uh, associate her brand with Gandhi. Very clever people. But the bottom line is, when Modi ran, he was not, you know, from the elite class. He, in many ways, identified himself with more common people. His win, I would argue, was short of, you know, uh, some type of revolutionary revolutionary event taking place, was quite extraordinary. And that is uh, sort of a brief synopsis of Indian history I can give you today. But um, I recently tweeted out a couple of weeks ago, uh, the issue with Pakistan. Um, Pakistan is essentially a failed state. It's a radical Islamic terror at its uh, you know, worst. It is the headquarters that is supported by Saudi Arabia, 
from the west of India and from the east by China. That state has always existed, including the American deep state has supported it, to, to, to ensure that India is kept in checks and balances. The idea is to make sure that India never becomes a regional superpower. That is why Pakistan was created. And there is no reason for that state would not exist if those two powers, uh, China and Saudi Arabia, were not involved. It, it, they would probably be an internal revolution by the people of Pakistan or uh, something else. So when um, you've had a consistent history of terrorism or the headquarters of terrorism in Pakistan, be it bin Laden, and we can go look at uh, ISIS headquarters, you can go look at you know, the history of what, 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 what Pakistan serves. Um, being as a, a point to actually uh, weaken India. So Modi has been the first person in my 55, you know, existence on this planet and my parents and others who actually went in and did something strong. In response to this, you had a guy called Sam Petroda, who I call Sam Gotroda, because he has this little goatee and, you know, died. And he tries to present, he, re, he attacked Modi saying Modi's response was not uh, appropriate. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this guy, Sam Petroda. He has projected himself as the as the person who saved Indian Telecom. And I have a personal uh, issue with this fellow because in 2008, I went back to India on a Fulbright. I finished my PhD at MIT in 2007. Uh, many of you know I came here in 1970 with my parents as an immigrant, I was seven years old. But in 2007 um, and eight, after I finished my PhD at MIT, I went back to India to do research on Indian medicine. I was very uh, moved to really unlock the secrets of Indian medicine. I'd finished up my research in 2009 while I was leaving India to come back to the United States. I was recruited um, by the Prime Minister of India's office of the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research to be the CEO of CSIR Tech. Let me give you the back background. In 1970, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru set up an organization called the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research. CSIR was a good vision of Nehru. Uh, Nehru wasn't, you know, uh, you know, completely corrupt. You know, he had his Anglophile relationships. He had his relationship with Lady Mountbatten. He wanted to make sure his daughter was, you know, the next prime minister. But he had to do some good things, I guess, to keep his role. But one of the things he created was this vision of CSIR, Council of Scientific Industrial Research. CSIR was supposed to be an organization which would unleash innovation across India. And when I mean innovation, CSIR would deliver real solutions, meaning it would deliver, um, you know, uh, innovation at the base level. So. Um, uh, for example, new industries in leather or new farming practices, uh, new technologies. It wasn't supposed to be a university. It wasn't supposed to be just publishing papers. It wasn't supposed to be uh, a institutionalized university. What ended up happening between 1970 until when I was in India, this was in 2009, was CSR had become a completely corrupt organization. 4,000 scientists all over India, 37 different labs, from the south of India to the north of India, uh, infrastructure that was set up, which was supposed to be set up to unleash Indian innovation, was doing minimal. In fact, um, over that 70 years, CSR had produced from its patent portfolio only about $2 million. That's roughly $20,000 a year. 
it had taken in billions of Indian taxpayer uh, revenue at that point. So in 2009, I, I, as I mentioned, I was finishing up my Fulbright and I was called into the office of the Director General of CSIR. He had heard about me, uh, who reported up to the Prime Minister of India. And on his desk, he had a dossier of everything I had done. And he said, why are you going back to the United States? Why don't you serve India, your motherland, and help out? And part of um, what he said was they had created what was called a new um, title and a new, um, uh, uh, essentially a new a type of offering called the Outstanding Scientist Technologist of Indian Origin, STIO, Scientist Technologist of Indian Origin. And as a part of that position, you'd be a additional secretary in the Indian government, which is like a deputy, uh, deputy secretary. Uh, you'd be part of the Indian government and you would get the highest level accolades as scientist level H. I guess in India they had, when you came in as an entry level scientist, you were A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. And people worked into their 50s, 60s to get to that level. I was at that time, I think in my early 40s. Um, at that time I was married um, and my father-in-law, who had also been in the Indian civil service, he said, you know, you don't get this kind of position. I had to work, you know, into my 60s to get this position. So he was quite amazed that I was given this offer. So the night that I was about to come back to the United States, that night, the director general of CSIR wrote out uh, and he said, don't leave, here's your offer. And I said, look, if I'm gonna be doing this, what would be my role? He goes, you would be the CEO of CSIR Tech, a new organizations whose mission would be to go across those 40 some odd labs, across those 4,000 scientists, find innovations and actually bring them to market. Because what had happened was, these innovations were not coming to market. So I said, look, I, I wanna be given freedom if I'm gonna do this. And, um, and he said, great, you will be. And this was all enumerated, my salary, et cetera. And I didn't really care about the salary. I just saw this as an amazing opportunity to serve. Why? Because you see, when I left India in 1970, and I, uh, the, the people that I had, had great love for was my grandparents. These were people who worked in the field 16 hours a day. They toiled. And I remember going back to India in 1977 and I saw the stark difference between America and India. And I realized that I had been given so much that it would be a disgrace if I didn't actually do something, not only for myself, but in return. One second. <clears throat> so that was, <clears throat> as, a, as a young kid, I was very motivated to get educated. That's what led to my education. So I saw this as an incredible opportunity to give back to India. So I signed on and within, um, this was June of 2009, I believe. By July, I had actually put together a plan which was a very entrepreneurial plan which would incent the scientists to take their innovations to market. And it was a very phased plan. They would get a certain amount of money to take their idea and show that they could get a customer. If they could get more customers, they'd get more money. But the idea was to make them entrepreneurs. Um, as I traveled around India, it was very well accepted people. I went to all the labs, met with around 2000 scientists. People loved this idea. They said, Shiva, you're a savior. Thank you so much for coming back to India and serving India. Within about three to four months, I realized that the director general had no interest in really supporting me. All the promises he made were held back. And more importantly, in, um, in July or August, half of the building in central Delhi where CSR headquarters was, was burned down. These, the director general was, uh, was under, under uh, 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 review 
or essentially under a major investigation for embezzling $35 million. So interesting enough in that fire, uh, a bookkeeper died and two other people and a lot of files were destroyed. So by August, September, I realized that these guys had just brought in the MIT guy for brand building, just to tell the public, oh, we have Dr. Shiva Yadure here, but they really didn't want to let me do anything. My father-in-law, in fact, told me, Shiva, keep your mouth shut. Don't do anything. You have a beautiful bungalow now in Delhi. Just go to work and you will one day become the uh, science minister. But that's not who I am. So six months into it, I wrote a report uh, which basically outlined all that I'd seen, all the amazing scientists that I'd met, that the fact that India literally had a feudal structure, no different than what the British left, that the labs were organized as fiefdoms, where you had the directors who were essentially buddies of the director general, and nothing was actually being done. In fact, great scientists of India were actually being suppressed. If they came up with innovations, their innovations weren't allowed to go to market because their boss's boss or the directors were afraid that that young scientist would come up and they would lose their power. It was a very ridiculous structure. So I wrote these observations, but I also offered solutions on how this could be overcome. There was a draft of this I created. I shared it with the scientists because I wanted to create an environment of transparency and free speech where the scientists here could give back feedback before I submitted it. When I, after I shared that, that report was released to the press and the, the instant that I sent the email out to the scientists, I, my email was shut down, I was fired, and I was eventually evicted from my home. In fact, my mom and my dad came up to Delhi and said, you fight. During this period, I was under death threats because you have to understand the Indian elite, which by the way, the Congress party of India at that point was running India. Manmohan Singh reported up to uh, Sonia Gandhi, uh, Rajiv Gandhi's, uh, you know, uh, widow, etc. So this is when I saw at a very profound level, the level of mafia that run India. Um, so in the, during this point, I'm sort of scrambling, trying to figure out what to do, whether I should stay in India or out. The press wants interviews with me. In fact, you can go find online. At one point, Star News came to me and they said, Dr. Idre, we'd like you to share your story. So right before I was about to do that story, I get a call saying, if you do this story from CSR, we're going to throw you in jail. I call up the, uh, the U.S. Embassy. They said, you should immediately come here and not do the interview. But I decided to do that interview it was for prime time. And it reached, you know, for eight minutes prime time, I shared my story and it reached, you know, hundreds of millions of people across India. It was my duty to my grandparents. During that time, I call one of my friends said, oh, you should call up this guy, Sam Petroda, who I call Goatroda because he tries to build his brand off this dyed goatee. And I said, hey, uh, I told Petroda was going on and he'd been branded himself as a savior of Indian telecom, which, as I'll share with you, is one of the biggest lies. Um, you find people build brands and they actually have nothing underneath them. So I called Petroda. I remember this vividly. I said, Sam, this is what's going on. I need your help. He said, I'll call you right back. And remember, Petroda is a U.S. citizen. He has, he has connections to the government. I'm thinking he can help. He never called me back. Um, eventually, I um, uh, was advised to leave India, and I literally took, went, took a third-class train all the way up to the border of uh, Nepal, crossed um, into Kathmandu, uh, bought tickets, then went to Qatar, and then to London and came home. 
And I can talk more about that, but it was a quite of a harrowing scene. But this guy Petroda didn't do anything. So coming back to, you know, to the to uh, today or a couple of days ago, Petroda attacks Modi, and that's when I connected the dots that Petroda has been taken under the shield of Rahul Gandhi, and I, and he is a cokehead. You can study his story. The guy is not too bright. He would not exist without this family dynasty. It's a disgrace that this guy. Uh, is even allowed to project himself as uh, any type of statesman. Petroda is now working for Rahul Gandhi. Petroda has a new book out saying how he saved Indian Telecom. It's the biggest lie. You have to understand, these people have a big PR machine, and I make fun of his goatee because this is how he builds his brand. He dyes his goatee, puts his hair back, you know, wears his suit, and has projected himself to the Indian people that he was a savior in Indian Telecom. This is so far from the truth. What this guy actually did was, if you actually look, he destroyed Indian Telecom. In 1989, he was actually promoting the idea of landlines in India. Um, uh, uh, other people had wanted to bring in, you know, mobile lines to India. And you can go read about all this. There's a great article on Live Mint. Just type in Live Mint Petroda Indian Telecom. It's a great analysis. And at that point, India could have had a mobile telephony infrastructure with Ericsson in 89. Petroda came out against it and said, oh, why do Indians need luxury cell phones? So he thought Indians, the masses, didn't deserve cell phones. They should have landlines. So between 89 to 1999, the so-called revolution was 0.6% to like 2% growth in Indian telephony usage. That's not a revolution. But during 1999, the new telecom policy came and that wasn't done by Petroda. In fact, Petroda was not even involved anymore. That was done by Vajpayee. And he promoted the concept of breaking away, uh, essentially supporting pri privatization of Indian telecom. And he took BSNL was created and the new telecom policy allowed privatization, much, you know, uh, frontline and all the quote unquote liberals of India attacked Vajpayee. But what you see between 1999 until according to the NTP policy between 1999 done by Vajpayee projected that India by 2010 would have 15% um, utilization of uh, phones. Well, it's by 2012, it actually is at 70%. Nearly 700 million people have cell phones. That's a revolution. That was not done by Gotroda or Petroda, whatever the hell his name is. That was done by Vajpayee who had a sense of what the Indian masses needed. So what you see, the entire Congress party, the entire dynastic rule needs to be completely destroyed. Anyone who seriously wants to support India's development needs to destroy the Indian Congress party, uh, needs to expose Rahul Gandhi and the BS of this guy Petroda. If it was up to him, he would have kept India in the medieval ages of landlines, which is what he wanted to do. And anyone who reads his book should expose this guy as a complete fraud. He has done, he did zero for Indian Telecom. And you can, the Liveman article exposes this. But what's unfortunate is that the media, just like we saw in how they promote 1947 as Indian independence, when it was actually Indian transfer of power, when Modi's election, in my view, was truly Indian independence, they keep pr promoting this guy as some telecom wizard. He, if, if we had followed him, meaning we, meaning the Indian people, it would have been destructive. So I think I covered what I wanted to cover. And uh, to all of you listening out there, I think India has a huge opportunity 
with the winning of Modi, it opens up opportunity for younger people to participate in elections. But people need to repudiate this guy, Gandhi, the entire Gandhi dynasty. Uh, uh, it's I don't have any political party sentiments. I can just see that the Congress party represents Britain, colonialism, old rule, and anything they do to project themselves as someone who stands for the masses is manufactured by a massive PR machine. And that's what we call fake news. And uh, is there anything else uh, I want to cover, Michelle? No. So I think I've, I wanted to cover CSIR. Um, I wanted to cover, quote unquote, Indian independence. I think we've covered on Pakistan being really the center of uh, terrorism headquarters. And I think we've covered this guy, Goat Rota. I hope this was valuable. Look forward to your comments. Let me see if there's any comments here. Oh, okay, people are saying, thanks for insight. There are only two types of people, saints, rest, or sinners. If people have any questions, feel free to ask me. Um, I'll take uh, any questions that people have. If not, uh, they can direct message you. You can direct message me at VA underscore Shiva. My email is vashiva at vashiva.com. I wish uh, everyone in India good night and wish everyone in the U.S. a great weekend and a good afternoon. Thank you.